The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and you're listening to The Bigger Picture. I've been away for a week walking in the Chilterns, absolutely wonderful, recharged my batteries, ready to... Uh, talk to Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Grout Show Tendency blog. Uh, Maya, we haven't spoken for a fortnight and many oh. things indeed have happened. Now, part of my walk actually went through um, Chesham on the day that uh, the by-election was held. In fact, we were talking to one of the constituents who I think probably wasn't massively pleased by the uh, turnout. <laughs> I remember talking about how his, you know, his grandson and how he was going to vote a completely different way, despite his advice. But <laughs> should we have been as surprised as perhaps some people were? Because I remember when we had the Darlington by-election, I mean, you were talking about how we've got to pay attention to the south, and it's all very well about the, you know, the red wall, the, the blue wall up north. But you know, down south, you were pointing out the Conservatives had done were doing very badly in council elections. Yes, and I think this is part and parcel of the fact that whenever the political map of Britain is redrawn, as it was at the last election, there is always some sort of trade-off some sort of consequence mm. so you could argue that new labor's gains in middle england uh precipitated something of a start of a decline in the red wall mm. and equally i think that boris johnson's appeals to northern voters and red wall seats has come to some extent particularly since brexit at the expense of certain tory seats in the southeast of england mainly to the gain of the liberal democrats mm. and these were uh, this was, I think it's fair to say, uh, a sole bright point so far in Ed Davies' leadership of the of the Lib Dems. He hasn't had much to be pleased about over the last year or so. He's been in charge, but this was an incredibly impressive gain. A Conservative majority held by the late Dame Cheryl Gillan, uh, the MP since 1992, of over 16,000, turned into a Lib Dem majority of Eight, a swing that makes the <laughs> swing in the um, the previous yep. by-election we referred to appear to be um, small. And as ever, it's proof that politi- all politics is local. Sarah Green is new um, MP for that seat. Uh, several factors credited with her success, uh, not least of all HS2, although Dame Cheryl Gillan was a notable opponent of the project, which is uh, slicing through the Chilterns, uh, several mitigation measures put in. Yeah, place. we heard we heard quite a bit about this. No, mm. Not it's not only the construction work, uh, which many people seem to be upset about, but the fact that they they've got what they call locally stormtroopers, these massive groups of security guards trying to stop protesters going anywhere near it. Um, it the, the feeling of alienation was quite extraordinary. Yes. And couple this with the government's uh, planning reforms as well, which people are worried might leave, lead to uh, building on greenfield sites. And a fourth factor, I think, of course, is the perception of the government focusing too much on its um, new red wall seats as well. And with the, the levelling up agenda being articulated so far in certain areas, there is a sense, I think, from traditional Tories in the southeast that it is coming to some extent at their expense mm. and of course don't forget that labor still does very well in london but also we have the uh, london commuters too many of whom did vote for remain and 
there is a sense that whilst Labour is losing support in its traditional areas, it is gaining support in more affluent university towns in the south, so Cambridge, Norwich, Canterbury as well. So this is something that I think, although we saw Ed Davey knocking a blue wall down with a very small yellow hammer, it would have been more apposite to have had a Jenga tower, I think, and to have him uh, taking bricks out one by one. But there are 20 seats where the Lib Dems came second in 2019. Uh, 55% of people in Cheshire and Amersham supported mm. Remain in that election as well. And whilst the Conservatives' support and success was built, I think, largely on a um, the Brexit vote holding together, we shouldn't overlook the fact that lots of younger voters have moved out of London into the shires, particularly during the pandemic. And there is, I think, to a certain extent, a, a question of, is this just a blip? Because obviously we had things like Richmond Park where the Lib Dems opposed Heathrow yes. expansion. I mean, yeah, the, the Lib Dems or all that party under whatever name, I mean, had, does have a history of doing staggeringly well in by-elections in the middle of parliaments that are not then reflected later in a general election. But even then, I would still be worried if I were Boris Johnson by this result. And, and have we seen any evidence that the Conservatives are particularly worried? I, I mean, one similarity that struck me was the way in which um, many Labour voters in Hartlepool who switched were spitting blood over the choice of the candidate who yes. didn't seem to reflect them. Well, the Conservative candidate in um, Chesham didn't seem necessarily to be the most tactful choice. No, um, no, he did not. <laughs> and, and one got the impression that, as with Labour in Hartlepool until relatively late, perhaps taking things for granted, uh, you know, I've heard several people who are local in Chesham talking about how the Conservatives really weren't doing very much until just before the vote. Well, I think there's a certain element of, I, mean, I saw his concession tweet, the Conservative candidate, and he was saying, uh, oh, I'm disappointed that people chose to vote for somebody else. And I thought, well, that's democracy, mate. That's, you know, <laughs> yes. of all the messaging on this as well. <laughs> I think I think I think he may have been expecting given the size Lord Such the would have been saying that every single election. Yes. <laughs> I think given the um I often do wonder to what extent that I think traditional um Tory voters are looking at the current government with a certain degree of despair. There is, I think, a deeper sense of malaise with the Tory party that also goes back a bit longer. Yes, Johnson has invigorated parts of the country as well, but the Conservative electoral coalition was shifting even before this happened. We mustn't forget that the last, uh, the four elections, um, David Cameron didn't win an overall majority in 2010. He went into coalition with the Lib Dems then. Uh, he just won a slim majority in 2015 and Theresa May lost her overall majority in 2017 so although we've had we're into our 11th year now our 12th year of conservative governments the tories themselves haven't had an electoral win on this scale until 2019 and it took them winning in new parts of the country now it may be we are seeing a reorientation i think arguably uh, keir starmer's labor party could be better positioned to become the party of sort of the metropolitan areas uh while boris johnson's um town moves away the question is what to what extent the lib dems fill that gap now even picking up 20 seats would make the lib dems party of about 30 or so mps which mm. is roughly where they were just after their formation in the in the 1990s under paddy ashdown what all parties are really missing though are the sort of dynamic political forces and i, I think that the revelations that from dominic cummings for example that the um the, the, the current cabinet is to say the least lacking in talent certainly for example the health secretary we also can't overlook the fact that 
MPs like Dominic Raab in Esherin Walton, his majority is only a couple of thousand. Uh, Winchester, Steve Brine, majority of a thousand. There are Tory majorities in the south of England that are falling in certain seats. And whilst I don't think uh, that it's going to be enough to threaten Boris's majority, it is, I think, uh, a sign that Lib Dems can exploit these seats and I think perhaps try and make some gains. But then again, there's also the question of to what extent this is connected to issues just at the time. By-elections are always, like any poll, a snapshot of opinion at that time. Uh, yes. And nationally, the Tories are still leading Labour by 20 points. Yes. Now, one of the issues, obviously, in the area, as you mentioned, was was HS2, in which the uh, new MP was dead set against it, but her party is actually in favour of it, as all the major parties have been. But you have to wonder, HS2 was looking, well, an odd idea, perhaps, by the time the pandemic um, struck, much, much more expensive than when it was initially um, yes. suggested. Um Many people actually wondered whether it was actually worth it for being able to travel just a few minutes faster to to and from uh, Birmingham. Um, but surely after the pandemic hit, the arguments in favour of HS2, must, most of them must have completely evaporated. Why do you think the government is still so dead set on making it proceed? Clearly, they may well have got to the point where it'd be almost suicidally expensive to stop it. Um, but why are they still in favour? Well, spades are in the ground already for HS2. Phase one has begun construction as authorization for the legislation for phase 2A and phase 2B that go up to Leeds and Manchester respectively are underway. I mean, look, if, if, it, if it, 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 there's a whole set of questions there about infrastructure priorities in this yeah. country, improving east-west connectivity. The simple fact of the matter is that, as, as uh, I say this a bit churlishly as a West Midlander, I, I do think that improving speeds up to the Midlands is a good idea. I think actually that I, I'm living up there at the moment and commuting down to London is a good idea as well. And, I, you know, but unfortunately, I would much rather be seeing improved connectivity across the north of England, particularly between yep. Manchester and um, Hull, for example, yes, it seems and, to be the the, the, the rational idea. Um, all, all most rational people who discuss it say, so, yes, yeah, and there are exactly. so many things they could be doing with yes. a fraction of the money. And now, one thing we haven't um, looked at just before we change topic is what this might mean for Labour, because Labour's showing was pretty woeful, wasn't it? Yes, and I think, and a week today, it's the battle into Ben by-election, so we'll be chewing over that result mm. when we next speak, and there are, we're going to be touching on some of the behind-the-scenes reductions in Labour as well, but 600 votes is still pretty bad. Now, of course, it might be people tactically voted in this by-election, mm. it may have been that Labour voters went to the Lib Dems because they realised that was the best chance to give the Tories a bloody nose, but if Boris Johnson wins badly in Spen next week and i still think that labor will hold the mm. seat i think it'll be close i think it, it'll it'll matter but i think they picked a better candidate this time around i think that has a lot of bearing on what happens locally and bearing in mind that i, I wouldn't say that you know in the same way that it suits like richmond there are far more tory um lib dem marginals than there are labor lib dem marginals that this that this shift still represents a threat to Boris Johnson's um, support base in the South. But also we have to remember that Keir Starmer has had a very unusual start to being Labour leader as, as well, that he hasn't really had an opportunity to be in front of people. people. A lot of people don't know who he is, but that doesn't mean once they find out who he is that they're going to think that he's the great antidote to what many people uh, consider to be a uh, the, the, the Johnson government at the moment and their agenda. So... Again, I think watch Batley and Spen 
if, if Starmer loses battling Ben, I suspect he will be gone pretty quickly as Labour leader. I think that there are already movements behind the scenes, particularly from Angela Rayner, and I think their relationship has broken down again too. Uh, but the fact that we're less than three years now away from the next general election at the latest, Labour could be changing their leader again. We could be looking more at a 2005 scenario for the Tories there with, with the Labour Party in that role with Michael Howard taking over for, you know, for, for the uh, Michael Howard figure taking over for Labour. But politics is never dull and I love a good by-election result. <laughs> Okay, well, let's look forward to the uh, Batley and Spen. Uh, thank you, Mike. Um, let's uh, uh, have one of these and we're back in a moment. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Um, now, you mentioned before some of the revelations from um, Dominic Cummings, um, particularly about the health secretary. Um, our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, had his first face-to-face -face audience with the uh, Queen um, the other day. Um, we don't normally know what the Queen's talks about but um, we have heard that uh, apart from anything else she's been sympathizing with Matt Hancock at least we think that's the interpretation to place she called him a poor man she might of course be endorsing Dominic Cummings view <laughs> I doubt Her Majesty would use the colorful language that um, has emerged about Mr Hancock um, from those leaked text messages but I, I often think that you can read too much into a remark by yes the queen i think because she's often she's 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 heard to speak publicly so little mm. during the year apart from the set addresses and the queen's speech and and i think that the the opinion she actually voiced in question about the health secretary is not that controversial but what it does do is put the focus on um mr hancock at a time when i sense that with a, a reshuffle probably not that far off now he he will probably be moved at some point and probably demoted from the department for health you could say whether or not it's helpful, but some of the things Dominic Cummings has been talking about behind the scenes in terms of Hancock trying to throw um, different civil servants under the bus, uh, fabricating about, uh, allegedly fabricating about the readiness of PPE, for example. We saw another quite telling example in an interview Sir Simon Stevens, the outgoing head of NHS England, mm. gave about the health secretary and he was asked about those remarks and he declined to answer now of course you can say that's public officials but it, it feeds into this narrative that's been stoked around the health secretary and the department for health mm. not being fit for purpose at this point in time did we not hear that the health secretary was in possession of some figures that may have swayed um the prime minister when deciding to delay freedom day and if well, we can say that the Prime Minister is going to be presented by information from all sides, and I think we have to, again, differentiate between the advice that Boris Johnson has given and his capacity to make decisions as mm. the, the chair of government as he sees himself. I think what, what is clear is that he has given, um, in, the, in the pandemic response, he certainly didn't appear to have a great deal of confidence in his health secretary. But don't forget, there's a team of people around them in government as well. We, have, As I've said before, Michael Gove's role at the Cabinet Office has been grossly underexplored. And Dominic Cummings' role in this, I think, is to is to make a scapegoat out of the health secretary. Probably with some, he, he will, of course, deserve his fair share of, of blame as well. But also we had last year, the fact that uh, the number 10 was trying to pull a whole series of levers from the centre to respond to the pandemic. 
and they were finding those levers weren't working because of the Tory health reforms that had been implemented a decade earlier before Mr Hancock was in the cabinet, before Boris Johnson was in the cabinet, but when Mr Gove was in the cabinet as well. And I keep coming back to the fact that there, Michael Gove is one of the few threads of continuity through the three different prime ministers we've had. He's been in each of their cabinets. He's only been out of, out of government for one year of that. He's been in a variety of different government roles. He's been, and now, of course, he's right at the centre of things as Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and Minister for the Cabinet Office. I don't want to try and deflect too much blame away from Mr Hancock here. He he does have questions to answer as well. And I think that he is he's unlikely to receive a round of applause from any any side here as well. But the question of Boris Johnson's judgment in employing someone like Dominic Cummings, employing mm. Hancock, uh, engaging Michael Gove, it's a little it's a little harder to be critical when a prime minister is limited in who they can appoint to cabinet roles as well. It has to be a member of the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So, and I've said before that I don't think this go. I think this government, this Parliament, is very short on talent. And I was I was listening to. Alan Johnson, the former health secretary, speak uh, earlier in the week at an event I was organising, and he struck to me that we're, we're we're well beyond the the talents of even the, the new Labour era, let alone the people that went before that, like Ken Clark, for example, mm. to fill that role. The health secretary role in this response to the pandemic is going to be one that's under the microscope as never before when the inquiry gets going next year, and I suspect we'll hear a lot more from Mr Hancock once he's outside of government and plenty more from Dominic Cummings to come as well. But with the decision to delay Freedom Day uh, by another month, the Prime Minister's once again raised not just the hackles of the newly established GB News, but also I think many eyebrows in terms of when we might be coming out of this. But don't yes, let's, let's think about last summer when COVID was much worse than it is now. I mean, I've been reading um, ONS figures showing that 10 times more people are dying of flu and um pneumonia than of COVID, um, although obviously clearly they're worried about the um, uh, the the uh, the new variants. But at the same time, you know, last year, people were not inoculated. Now we've got a staggering percentage of the country has been inoculated. You, you wonder why. I think somebody, one newspaper published this week that COVID is now the 24th most deadly thing. And there are 23 things of which people are dying above um, COVID. Why so different to last summer? It just seems very peculiar. Um, and yet the opinion polls still show that people seem reasonably happy with the restrictions, although yes. I've been hearing more and more from friends that, you know, they get very grumpy about there being one rule for us and one rule for the high ups. I mean, witness what happened at the G7 meeting and witness what is now happening with UEFA officials. So desperate is the government to have football matches here that it will waive the rules for some people, but not those people who actually want to try and escape and get a bit of sunshine or well, even stay in this country. Well, there's there's a lot to unpack there. I think we need yes. to go back. So first of all, let's talk about the broad public support for restrictions. And yes, you're mm, right. Yes. The continues shows that the delay to Freedom Day, as it's been dubbed, I prefer to sit as lockdown lifted to be honest, because I still feel comparatively free at the moment. I still go, I can go to I'm going I'm going to work once a week. I'm going to I'm going right. to the pub with my colleagues and having a drink. So you no know, freedoms are coming back. Let's let's be let's be clear about that. And you know, I think that you know we're not not living in a society which has draconian enforcement of the rules like China. What we are interested in is the justification for exemptions for certain groups of people. And I think this goes all the way back to Barnard Castle again. It goes back to Dominic Cummings, who, again, 
I think still took the biscuit, the metaphorical biscuit when it came to <laughs> that trip. And don't forget, that was the point in which the government's opinion uh, ratings tanked after being it favourable for the first time in 10 years, when it's perceived to be one rule for Boris Johnson's uh, senior advisor and another one for most members of the public who at the time we were embarking on a very draconian lockdown. I'm not saying that we, you know, the restrictions uh, haven't shaped for some people and that that there are still people who are who are, who are facing it, but we have a, a large the, the context of the situation we're in now is that we have had the majority of the population has been vaccinated, even the under the vaccination dates have been brought forward now by three weeks. So people yeah. who are under 25 now can book their vaccines. People who are in there, my partner's had her first vaccine now, months after I had my one uh back in January as well. She she's in her early 30s. So I think that as Theresa, Theresa May articulated this best, and I think she's she's carving out a very good post-Prime Ministerial career for herself, actually, as, as a critic of the government in the Commons, which is why we need former Prime Ministers still in Parliament, because they can speak with weight and gravitas, having held that most difficult of offices. And she said, look, the, the compact that was agreed upon, the compact that was given to the British people was that as the vaccines rolled out and were proven to be effective, which they have in every study so far shown to be, mm. restrictions would be rolled back. And what we can't have is this constant sort of hokey-cokey in-out on things like international travel. Yes. And of course, we can't have exemptions made for groups like UEFA. We can't have exemptions made for groups like the G7 leaders. Yes, it's great to see people coming to this country, and but it has to be connected to Britain opening up again to the world and that is the point it cannot be one rule for a certain group of people and another one but our freedoms are returning as well so we have to be balanced in our assessment of this i feel but it does stick in people's throats when you see the g7 leaders uh, gathered on the speech and my claim to fame this week is my family were down in falmouth at the same time and they actually found they went to the restaurant of the people who did the g7 barbecue as well oh, right. but it does but it doesn't mean that the leaders should be able to get away unchallenged with yes. sitting you know on the beach having fun if that isn't available to the rest of us, then that does smack of elitism, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, yes, if I had a button that press, uh, played applause, I would press it now. Uh, let us pause for breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, and I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Um, uh, we need to look at Northern Ireland, the DUP, another month, another leader. Another month, another leader. So the DUP has had five leaders in its 50-year history, but three of these leaders in the last 50 days, <laughs> which says a lot about the state of Northern Irish politics. Uh, so first of all, we had the defenestration of Arlene Foster, uh, the uh, first, twice first minister and the DUP leader over, uh, well, the, the DUP has, has been in a tricky position on a variety of issues, but uh, arguably under Arlene Foster's leadership, it acquired its greatest ever relevance to UK wide politics, first of all, propping up the May government and then opposing the, um, uh, opposing the Northern Ireland Protocol in its revised form. What we have seen, however, since um Ms. Foster left has been just how much trouble the main party for unionism is in Northern Ireland. Uh, factional splits emerged. Edwin uh, Poots, the communities minister, was agriculture minister, sorry, was elected uh, to succeed her, but didn't take up the role of first minister himself. He's much more hard line than um, Mrs. Foster. But he came unstuck uh, not only through nominating uh, Paul Gervin 
to hold the post of first minister separately because the uh, the posts in the Northern Ireland executive are held jointly. So the Sinn Féin and the DUP hold the, make the decisions together. So it's not um, there's no seniority issue here. It's that both the joint leaders of the executive. But the issue has become that um, the UK government has insisted that the executive hold to an agreement uh, called New Decade, New Approach, uh, NDNA, which insists that there must be protections put in place for Irish language and culture, as agreed, and um, the new uh, cultural uh, Irish cultural office would have to be established as well. Uh, Edwin Poots uh, nominated Paul Gurn to be First Minister to keep the executive running at a time when the UK's government said they would legislate for this if it didn't happen. There was an internal party revolt and um, Mr Poots was forced out and Mr Gervin will have to resign as First Minister uh, when a new DUP leader comes in. The successor to Edwin Poots is the veteran uh, DUP MP Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, who's the currently current um, DUP leader in the House of Commons. He has said he will move to Stormont to take up the post of First Minister, but he's also calling for a rethink on the Irish language approach as well. As if Northern Ireland isn't going through enough turmoil as well, and I, I, I work with a lot of Northern Irish colleagues in my role at consultancy, yeah. and I, I, I get an insight. What, indeed, my mentor is a DUP councillor, and talking to him about this is absolutely fascinating. What we are seeing is the DUP, um, and Edwin Poots has told Stephen Nolan, who's the main political host over there, that he believes that Sinn Féin would be the largest party now in the executive. We've seen that combined unionism block shift. And don't forget in that in, since the Good Friday Agreement, we've seen the UUP supplanted by the DUP as that point now. But the DUP's factional infighting is really threatening its status as the leading voice of unionism in Northern Ireland. Well, fascinating. Now, you want to talk, I think, about Labour and the, the not its leaders, but the people behind the leaders, which is always presumably considerably important. I mean, we talk about Cummings an enormous amount. Um, we haven't really talked about Labour's backroom boys. No, and, and, I think it's, and it's important to say, actually, that if we're talking about leaders' judgment here, uh, we often talk about who's in their cabinets, but actually who's advising them is where the leaders have complete discretion, complete choice mm. of who to appoint. Keir Starmer has had the same team around him for about just over a year now. Uh, one of them is Baroness Jenny Chapman, who is a former MP for Darlington, uh, and also uh, Morgan McSweeney, who was his chief of staff. Kiss backroom staff have come in for a lot of flack, and indeed his communications director and deputy communications director left uh, their roles in the wake of um, the uh, by-election result last week. Uh, for different reasons, it has to be said, but there are... <sighs> There's a lot of talk here. So what we are seeing is Blair has reached back to appoint somebody called Matthew Doyle, who was a former uh, communications advisor to Tony Blair and to David Blunkett. The these are interim appointments, though, designed to shore up the the state of the of Keir Starmer's office, and it could be interpreted, I think, as perhaps. Um, Looking back to more experienced operators, indeed, Damien McBride, who was famously worked for Gordon Brown, worked for Emily Thornbury when she was a senior member of the Shadow Cabinet as well. But it also, I think, reflects the fact that Labour could hopefully be seen as reaching back to its more experienced time. Because for a generation of people, particularly my generation, Labour was the competent party of government for 13 years. And given the fact we have had a comparatively unstable Conservative governments going since then, there is something to be said for looking 
back to that phase for experienced backroom operators as well, without returning to the policies of Blairism. And Matthew uh, Doyle's appointment has been seen by some as a smart move, but judged by those on the left quite harshly. And don't forget, there's still that question of what he does with the post-Corbyn legacy. Does he bring Corbyn back into the party? Does he keep that manifesto, which many on the left appear to be wedded to? I have my own answers here, but I can't pretend there are any simple solutions to Labour's problems, and simply changing an advisor is not going to sort that. Well, it will be, of course, extremely interesting in the wake of the Batley and Spend by-election, which is a week away from us as we talk. But then, I mean, presumably, if they hold it as you expect to with a candidate who clearly is rather better chosen, perhaps, than theirs in, in Hartlepool, um, that presumably will give some sort of respite to Keir Starmer. I think it will, but it won't stop the hemorrhaging in terms of Labour. There's deep internal divisions within the party. Kim Ledbetter, um, sister of the late Joe Cox, who held the seat in, until 2016, sadly died just over, mm. just over five years ago is a good choice for the candidate i think she comes across as an effective candidate as well but there are bigger forces at work inside here and labor is has less than 200 mps at the moment they're in their weakest position they've been despite this being the fourth term of a conservative government that has made some questionable decisions at best about how it runs the country and this isn't a political point it's a competence-based point i would argue looking at the fact that the former Tory prime minister has been involved in a lobbying scandal we've had theresa may's government um firstly throwing away majority and leading us through the brexit shambles for two years and now boris johnson's handling of the pandemic the government hasn't exactly covered itself in glory but yet this doesn't strike you as a labor party that's emulating either harold wilson's uh, position or tony blair's at the end of those two great periods of Tory rule to try and come back into office. So again, it Labour's got a lot to do, and it could be the party's in a death spiral as well. Again, we can't assume that just because Keir Starmer's not Jeremy Corbyn, things are going to go well for Labour. We have to remember there's a lot of that has to be done to rebuild credibility in Labour's eyes, especially given that they were the party of government not so very long ago. Mike, thank you very much. Indeed, we'll be talking again in a fortnight's time, by which time, of course, we will know the result of the Batman and Spen um, by-election. I have been in conversation with Mike Indian. Uh, he will be back for the bigger picture in a fortnight's time. Uh, Mike is political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.